Welcome to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast, where we explore the exciting science behind heart rate variability. The material discussed in this podcast should not be taken as medical advice. Please check with your medical provider to make sure any suggestions or strategies are right for you. Visit us at the OptimalHRV.com website to learn more about the Optimal HRV app, download a free copy of Matt's book, Heart Rate Variability, and also get show notes and additional resources around heart rate variability and its applications. Welcome, friends, to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. Um, I'm Matt Bennett. I am here with some heavyweights uh, uh, around uh, the concept of mindful self-compassion. And I'm, uh, I'm so excited to have uh, both my colleague, Dr. Ina Hazan, and Dr. Chris Germer here uh, today as well to dive into Chris's expertise and work uh, around self compassion. So uh, Chris, Ina, welcome to the show. Um, I, I am so excited after uh, Chris learned a little bit about your work uh, to, to really dive into this. Uh, but before I do, I, I'd love for you to just uh, give, give an introduction of yourself. And, I, you know, I, I'm going to ask a question that, that I want to know the answer to. Uh, what brought you to self-compassion and really dedicating a good part of your work uh, to, to this important topic. <laughs> uh, thanks. Thanks for having me, uh, Matt. It's, it's really great to be talking with you and also with my old friend, uh, Ina. Yeah, so uh, what brings me to self-compassion? I've been uh, meditating since I was 25 years old. I'm now uh, 69. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd be enlightened by now, so I need a I, lot. I was, of gonna, I was gonna ask, hey, have you got to the uh, self-actualization stage of the pyramid yet? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I need a lot of self-compassion in, in light of the current <laughs> situation. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, yeah, so um, uh, I've been uh, practicing mindfulness uh, for most of my adult life. Um, I'm also a clinical psychologist and uh, what got me to self-compassion was after I graduated uh, with a PhD as a uh, so-called expert in anxiety disorders, for the next 20 years, I suffered from debilitating public speaking anxiety and really had um, no capacity to address it. Uh, and I did everything that I knew was possible. And then I learned loving kindness meditation for myself for oneself. And that was basically my doorway into uh, self-compassion. That was in 2006. In 2008, I uh, met Kristen Neff, who is a leading researcher in this field. She created the self-compassion scale back in uh, 2003. And then from 2010 until the present, we've basically been developing, it's pretty well developed now, The an eight-week um, scientifically supported um, training program for self-compassion, kind of based on mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction, but focusing specifically on, on um, increasing self-compassion. And that program has been taught by teachers around the world, probably to, prob I would say, over 200,000 people right now. Awesome. Yeah. And so if people are interested in that, um, there's an organization called the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion that uh, really distributes the program in a, in a really uh, beautiful way. So that's my main interest for the last 15 years at least. 
is um, self-compassion. I, I think it's, um, as Kristen Neff says, kind of the secret sauce uh, for mental health and well-being. <laughs> Great. So, so I, I, let me start really simple and then we'll, we'll keep uh, progressing into the topic. But yeah, what is self-compassion? Let, let, let's start there because, I, you know, I, I think we could all probably come up with our own definition to it. But as somebody who's historically kind of had what fixed mindset thinking, that sort of thing, beat myself up a lot as an athlete and, you know, continue to do a little bit of that today. You know, I think I could probably throw out a lay person's definition, but I would love to see uh, as an expert in this field, uh, what exactly, how would you define self-compassion? Uh, well, first of all, the term tends to give people the creeps <laughs> because <laughs> when they when they think of self, they think of selfishness. And when they think of compassion, they think of weakness. So why would I want to cultivate something that's going to make me selfish and weak? Um, but uh, the research really shows quite the opposite um, it, uh, there's over 4,000 studies on the subject right now, and it, it actually increases compassion for others. It makes us more emotionally resilient, less selfish, more motivated, all kinds of good things in the research. But what it means in a simple way, say an informal definition of self-compassion is uh, treating our, when we suffer, treating ourselves with the same kindness and understanding as we would treat a good friend. And this, I should add, is um, not, not so easy. In fact, uh, the research also shows that 78% of us are, are more compassionate toward others than toward ourselves. Um, so it's a bit of an uphill climb, but it's uh, definitely worth it. It really does appear to have a very uh, positive effect on psychological well-being, physical well-being, and also improves our relationships. So that's an informal definition. Uh, the formal definition uh, was uh, made by Kristen Neff, um, as I mentioned before, in 2003. And that is basically a three-component definition, uh, which includes um, mindfulness versus um, over-identification or getting caught in our stories, um, common humanity versus a sense of isolation and also self-kindness rather than self-criticism. So to be self-compassionate, we actually need to be aware, we need to feel connected to others, and uh, there needs to be a quality of warmth. So we call self-compassion loving connected presence. Oh, I love that. I love that. So Ida, I, I, I want to bring you in here. So, uh, you know, we connected uh, over when I, I read your book, which I thought uh, did a good job, and you, you speak to this a little bit as well, but, but I would love to, to get you jumping in here as, you know, one of, one of the uh, world experts on uh, mindfulness and even throwing maybe a more scientific, uh, not necessarily scientific, but more kind of technology part with the biofeedback thing. And I wonder with your thinking about uh, mindfulness, biofeedback, uh, how self-compassion in Chris's work uh, informs your thinking. Well, uh, you know, 
Chris's work is what, you know, originally, you know, saved my thinking. Um, you know, I met uh, Chris, uh, you know, back when uh, I was very much into uh, biofeedback and, you know, I loved measuring things and, you know, getting uh, uh, the ability to keep track of results and having data and knowing what's going on with people internally with a fair bit of precision. Uh, and, you know, we kept getting stuck uh, on things like, uh, that in, in that inner critic, you know, what I'm not doing this right, I'm a failure, I'm an idiot, there we go again, I can't even breathe correctly, uh, you know, I keep doing this to myself, what's wrong with me? Uh, and I kept getting stuck with, you know, on this with my clients, you know, who themselves were, were getting stuck, and my internal critic was going, yep, you're a failure, you know, you're no good therapist, <laughs> you know, you just need to stop it right here, you can't even help people, you know, breathe correctly, and then they shouldn't need you for this and there we go um and i was fortunate enough to be meeting uh, regularly with chris at that time in my life and uh, you know what came of that you know you know chris uh, at some point suggested like well do you have to try you know do you do people have to be making things happen uh and this idea of you know we can do uh biofeedback from the standpoint of mindfulness and compassion where we can just approach whatever is happening um with uh kind presence uh you know your finger temperature is going down instead of up well you know that's okay let's just stay with that let's see what's going on uh let's allow that to happen um and you know let's see what your body does when you allow your body to do what it knows how to do and lo and behold that's when your finger temperature starts going up uh and that's when the internal that internal critic goes oh <laughs> you know maybe you're not so bad <laughs> And that's when the client goes, oh, you are being so helpful to me. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, the idea that self-compassion really is a, the secret sauce to many other things. You know, biofeedback is really powerful. Um, heart durability training is really powerful. Um, and it can really get people stuck uh, if they're not able to have a compassionate presence. Um, and, you know, for us as therapists, as trainers, uh, you know, we can get really stuck right there uh, with them without the ability for us to be compassionate for ourselves and for, to help our clients cultivate it. Awesome. So, you know, I would love to hear, uh, because I know a lot of people that kind of tune in maybe that have followed me uh, are in the helping and, and healing professions. And I don't think this question only applies to them. I think if you're a, a spouse, partner, friend, family member, uh, can apply to all that as well. But something that I often train folks in is you know, empathy, compassion, creating a partnership, a therapeutic alliance. Uh, we've called it different things throughout the years. Uh, Chris, I, I believe I heard you mention, which, I, which I'd love to kind of pull this nugget out if I heard you correctly, is compassion for self, uh, maybe uh, translating into compassion for others. And I want to I want to ask one, did, did I sort of hear that right, a little nugget that you gave us there? And I'd love if I did for you to expand on that a little bit. Yeah, you certainly heard that right. And the research is very clear that as we grow in self-compassion, we also grow in uh, compassion for others. What's interesting, though, is that um, if we just look at the population in general, as I mentioned before, people are more compassionate to others than themselves. But when we increase our self-compassion, definitely compassion for others increases. And I had I had a direct experience of this after I learned loving kindness meditation for myself and then got up on stage 
at a Harvard Medical School conference. Um, this was the first public event after learning self-compassion. Uh, the usual uh, terror arose uh, with me when I got up to speak. Uh, but there was a new voice in the back of my head that said, oh, may you be safe, may you be peaceful, may you be healthy. And then I looked over at the crowd and I had, for the first time I would say in my life, really warm feelings toward these folks. And, and, and that, that sort of flow that may I be safe was really, oh, everybody looks so beautiful to me. And I just had the wish that everybody in the room would be, would enjoy the conference. They would be happy, they'd be thriving. So I had, after practicing loving kindness, for myself for four months, had a very direct, immediate experience of how self-compassion spills over to compassion um, for others. Um, but also, if, if we look at this physiologically, um, uh, a lot of us, when we're under stress, we're in a threat state, you know, we're in a fight, flight, or free state. And self-compassion is, and that kind of, self-compassion is the opposite physiology. You know, the, the fight, flight, uh, freeze, threat state is more about uh, cortisol and adrenaline, whereas um, there's a kind of a care physiology that's involved when we're in a self-compassionate state. And that is the, the hormones uh, like oxytocin, love hormone, or the endorphins, a feel-good hormone. So there's a really a different uh, physiology in a state of self-compassion. And when we're in that state of physiology, it kind of doesn't matter whether we're focusing on ourselves or others, we're just in a warm state. And I think we all know <laughs> when we beat up on ourselves, we're likely to beat up on others. When we like ourselves, there's a kind of a glow that includes others. So definitely, Matt, um, self-compassion does spill over to compassion <clears throat> for others as we learn the practice. <clears throat> Awesome. So, so I, you know, hearing you, uh, sort of this, the script is very familiar, uh, uh, with the loving kindness, uh, uh, meditation, uh, which, which I have found in actually, uh, working with people in the helping healing professions. It, as I like to say, if you're looking to start a mindfulness practice, uh, I, I always, you know, encourage people at least to, Hey, Hey, listen to that on Spotify or YouTube. Uh, because it, because I think it's a, it's a great thing for folks, uh, in the in the fields, education is another one I find it uh, really useful for. I'm interested in your journey from you know sort of learning about self compassion to having that powerful experience of applying it to some of your own anxiety around public speaking to then then creating uh, the mindful self compassion program. So so could you tell me a little bit about uh, because I, I imagine you saw something in loving kindness that, that you found really valuable, and yet you saw a, a direction where you could uh, bring, bring additional value to the world. And, and I, I kind of wonder how that journey uh, went for you. Mm. Well, I think the watershed event was a meeting with Kristen Neff. We were at a meditation, a, a science, a scientist's meditation retreat, and I was giving her a, a ride back to the airport. She lives in Austin and then back to the Boston airport. <clears throat> and um, at some point, you know, we were talking about self-compassion. I said, you know, Kristen, you should really start a training program in self-compassion because she's a researcher and she was mostly 
you know, just interested in measuring it and how it works and so forth. But I thought I'm a clinician. So I thought, well, this sounds, you know, like a really good thing for people to learn, but there was no training for that. So, so I said to her, you should, you know, um, teach people self-compassion. She said, I'm a scientist. I don't do it. You should. (laughs) (laughs) So at that moment, we kind of looked at each other and, you know, thought, well, I don't know, let's do it together. And (laughs) which shows you were uh, i've made the trip to the boston airport a few times so if you were uh uh, regulated it probably shows that the mindfulness uh sessions that you were just coming out of were (laughs) were very effective if you were having innovative ideas on the way to boston airport because my personal experience with that commute uh, um i'm not thinking about how to help change the world (laughs) Well, but I do think because there is an inevitable traffic jam, we had a lot of time, so we might have eventually gotten to it. <laughs> awesome. So, so Ina, I, I'd like to, Chris mentioned some of the, the uh, sort of neurobiological and physical uh, chemicals when we talk about maybe reductions in the cortisol, that, that being sort of the inverse system, if, if that word is okay to use. Uh, to the self-compassion piece where we see more, you know, oxytocin, uh, endorphins. I I just kind of wonder with your experience with biofeedback and and all the amazing things that that you sort of measure in your experience, how have you seen folks that that might be practicing self-compassion as part of a biofeedback? And I I think I'm talking about things you do here, which, which hopefully I'm not too out in left field here. But, but I wonder with everything you measure, well, what are some of the things you found with folks? Yeah, um, let me start a little bit uh, you know, pr- prior to your question and I will um, answer your question, but I think it's very much related. You know, as I was listening to uh, you know, Chris describing you know, the, the physiology of uh, self-compassion and how that translates to compassion for others, um, you know, what coming, uh, kept coming back to me is uh, you know, as you know, it's really difficult uh, to be focused on other people uh, and hard to be compassionate and open towards others when we're not feeling safe, uh, when we're not feeling regulated ourselves. Um, so it, what it sounded to me like, you know, Chris, you were describing was a state of better self-regulation, um, you know, where you know, your mind and, and your body were feeling in a safer place to then be able to look outward and go, oh, you know, look at all these wonderful people, you know, who are not here to eat me, but they are here to, you know, hear me yeah. and support me, right? Um, and uh, I think this is where, you know, heart rate variability comes in uh, just as importantly as, you know, oxytocin uh, and endorphins because, you know, heart rate variability is uh, the self-regulatory mechanism. And I think this is the point of intersection between self-compassion and um, heart rate variability. Uh, they both work uh, on self-regulation. The state of self-compassion regulates your, your body and your mind. Um, and raises your heart rate variability. Uh, and the same thing happens the other way around as you raise your heart rate variability, uh, you regulate yourself better, you're uh, in a better state to experience uh, self-compassion and that you're better able to experience compassion for others. Um, and then Matt, you know, to answer your question more directly, this is exactly what I see uh, when I get people hooked up, you know, to all the instruments and you know, when we're measuring, you know, all the various aspects of uh, um, heart rate variability and breathing and, you know, perhaps other 
other, you know, physiological measurements such as, you know, muscle tension and skin conductance and things like that. Um, you know, what we, you know, what I see, you know, when people are talking about um, threatening uh, situations, um, you know, things like public speaking events or encounters with, uh, you know, scary uh, family members, uh, you know, or, you know, scary bosses, et cetera. Um, you know, the body goes into the state of uh, uh, threat uh, and we can very much see that, you know, heart durability decreases, you know, breathing becomes dysregulated, you know, skin conductance goes up, muscle tension increases, things like that. Um, and, um, when we either bring a self-compassion uh, into that, or we go into a state of, you know, increasing heart durability, both achieve a similar result. Um, and for different people that weigh in, um, you know, for some people, the weigh in really is through uh, self-compassion uh, because they actually have a lot of trouble paying attention to the physiology of it. Um, and for others, self-compassion is scary. So they're able to get there through regulating their physiology more directly by raising their um, heart durability. Um, but eventually, um, you know, people get to that state of better self-regulation, um, you know, and those who raise their heart durability end up becoming more self-compassionate. And those who uh, are start with more self-compassion increase their heart durability. Fascinating. Uh, Chris, I, I'd like to something that that you know Ina said, and I, I've seen it in my work as well. But you know, people struggling. I think Ina, your your words may have been almost afraid or scared of self compassion. Like uh, you know, and I, I I've done a lot of work in the trauma arena, and, and we talk a lot about personal narratives and the story of yourself and and those sort of things. So. So Chris, I would love to, to hear from you. I'm gonna just ask a very general question and I'll let you just go wherever it sort of makes sense to go is, why do we struggle so much as human beings to accept ourselves? I won't even say love, but even sometimes like ourselves. I, it just seems like there's this, I don't know if it's a modern phenomena. I don't, you know, do we just have too much time on our hands? So we overthink, you know, I'd love to just get your, uh, even if it's not scientific, I'd love to get your opinion on why is it such a struggle for us to, to like ourselves? Yeah. So that's the million dollar question. And <laughs> I, you know, I don't, I suspect that uh, we don't really have research evidence to answer that question, but um, many people think, well, it's cultural, you know, but I've had the opportunity to teach self-compassion all over the world. And wherever I go, people have a cultural reason for not being more self-compassionate in that area. You know, in China, it's because of Confucius. In, uh, in uh, the Midwest, it's because we're supposed to be working hard and giving us, not giving us a break because we're Lutheran. And, and then there's Catholic guilt. And, you know, so there's always a good, a good explanation. But I think what's really more consistent around the world is that people are just way more compassionate toward others than themselves. And I have to say, I, I think it goes down to phys human physiology. I think we're just hardwired for that. Um, and uh, in particular, um, our uh, threat system is, is, is more rapid than the care system, subsystem of the autonomic nervous system. And so when, and, and we're so easily triggered in a threat state and uh, 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 my sense is, is, is that uh, when that happens and there's no external danger, um, <laughs> I like when Ina said, 
uh, you know, the audience is not going to eat you, you know? So <laughs> basically, basically the threat system is kind of based on the idea that something's going to eat you. Uh, but nowadays what eats us is attacks on our self-esteem. So we're getting triggered all the time. The threat system getting triggered all the time. But when there's nobody, no being outside that's going to eat us, instead of um, fighting an external threat, we fight ourselves. So self so basically, um, fight becomes self-criticism. Flight becomes kind of a self-abandonment. When the danger is inside, we abandon ourselves, <clears throat> often in shame. And freeze becomes uh, rumination or getting stuck in our heads. And what's really interesting in Kristen Neff's conceptual definition of self-compassion <clears throat> is that it's, um, she, ha it's a, she has like a two-factor she has two factors. There's self-compat, there's like self-kindness on the one hand and self-criticism on the other. And there's common humanity on one hand and isolation on the other and mindfulness on one hand and rumination or over-identification on the other. Really the opposite of self-compassion is, is, is we could say the fight, flight, freeze system turned against ourselves. What's also interesting, I should say, Matt, is that um, those aspects of self-criticism, isolation, and self-absorption or rumination are very clearly aspects of shame. <laughs> yes. So in the same way that self-compassion is, is a state of care and a state of safeness, as Ina is saying, it's also the opposite of shame. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just seen that with working, especially early on in my career with uh, survivors of abuse. Uh, you know, I, it just it just shocked me. Uh, there, there's things that I wish people in graduate school would at least mention to me. And the one was these abuse, these these people, children who've experienced just horrific ab abuse. I just heard over and over it's my fault. I, I deserved yeah. it. And, and it's just like, I, I, I don't think what would have been really useful to hear was that would be where I would meet people in their, their, their journey. Like, like it would be that devoid of any self-compassion or, you know, in the trauma world, we talk a lot about self-worth um, and how trauma, the message of trauma uh, kind of steals that away from you. And it's just like, uh, you know, astounded me. And obviously it is a, you know, extreme examples of self-criticism and shame, but just, just uh, blew me away about where, where I met them in their journey. And, uh, you know, how I was, I wasn't thinking we were joking about self-actualization early on. It's like, you know, how do you get someone to just say, yeah, I'm an okay person. Um, and yeah. that was where a lot of my clinical work early on was, was really focused. Well, I think that um, it, uh, Ina has come up with a lot of brilliant things in this field. And, you know, the first really brilliant thing was actually that mindfulness is about feedback and, yeah. <laughs> but it's about a particular kind of feedback. And can we just be with, can we allow ourselves to get this kind of clearer feedback, more clear than we might get from um, mindfulness? But one of the difficulties is that um, uh, what, what Ina also said is that self-compassion can be scary and biofeedback is uh, not so scary. So the, the, the question ultimately comes up, why is self-compassion so scary? And I think you just nailed it, uh, Matt. And that is that when we start to give ourselves kindness, 
we actually do begin those early childhood traumas and um, toxic messages that we got about ourselves actually reveal themselves. There's, there's a saying, love reveals everything unlike itself. And we have an expression in the mindful self-compassion training called uh, backdraft. And that is when you give yourself unconditional love, you discover the conditions under which you are not loved. So self-compassion um, indeed can be scary. And I think this is another reason uh, in answer to your earlier question of why people are not more self-compassionate is because when we are kind to ourselves, we will in fact re-experience uh, disconnections, old basically relational pain will definitely come up. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't practice self-compassion. It usually makes people not practice self-compassion. But if you would like to increase self-compassion, you actually need to expect, in fact, even begin to welcome that these old pains come up because they will be healed with self-compassion. Giving ourselves now the love and attention that we needed back then, uh, when these old traumas come up, when we give ourselves self-compassion, we can actually meet them with mindfulness and self-compassion and heal them. We can, we can reparent ourselves. So uh, this comment by Ina, which is that um, you know, self-compassion is scary. And then also the option of, of um, HRV biofeedback as a way of enhancing the same physiology without touching the uh, early trauma necessarily because it's, it's resource building, it's creating safeness. HRV biofeedback is creating safeness is, is a gentle way in. It's a way of strengthening that resource so that when these traumas do come up, we uh, already have a foundation for working with them. Awesome. Yeah. Nina, I just want to pause. Uh, anything you'd like to add or follow up with that? That, that, was a, that was a master class right there. Yeah, uh, that was a really awesome way to connect, uh, connect the concepts, Chris. Um, I um, absolutely, I absolutely agree. Um, it, you, you know, you're right. It, uh, when a self-compassion, you know, appears uh, threatening, um, you know, it's ultimately not the self-compassion itself that's scary. It's uh, it's what we are being compassionate towards uh, that's scary and threatening, and that's where people, uh, you know, go no, 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 no. Um, and you know, again, as I was listening to what occurred to me, you know, people so often say, "Oh, no, self-compassion is for the weak." Uh, but again, uh, it's that's almost like a justification for uh, giving ourselves a break from paying attention to that really uh, nice. scary, difficult uh, stuff. Uh, because you know, ultimately, when we can allow ourselves to look at it through the lens of self-compassion, that's when we are at our bravest. Right? Um, and. Uh, um, Anything that we can do to help people uh, get there in a you know gentler uh, in a gentler way can go um, a very a very long way. So if we're creating that sense of uh, better um, self-regulation, so that by the time we get to the tough stuff, um, the intensity uh, of it is just a, a little bit lower, and people are willing to uh, sit with it, um, and you know the fear is not as strong, and you know, people are willing to uh, to look at it and uh, uh, experience uh, self-compassion, uh, which for so many people is life changing you know yeah. you have go, from going 
from this is absolutely not for me uh, to going, oh my God, this feels so uh, different. And you know, that transformation is just remarkable uh, to watch. Uh, you know, uh, for me as a therapist, as a clinician, that's, and, you know, having witnessed that a number of times, it's uh, really just, uh, just amazing. Awesome. I, I'd love to ask uh, two Harvard Medical School connected folks here, uh, like a, a question that, that I, I, it's just a subject that I think personally I've, I've dealt with my entire life, but I also see this almost rigidity, uh, around like perfectionism, because I think a lot of folks uh, uh, may, again, maybe it's cultural pieces. I, I think it's probably most cultures, uh, at least that I have uh, studied that, that have this sort of expectation. And I wonder, you know, uh, Chris, I wonder if you had any thinking about this drive uh, that's really, I think, supported by them to be perfect, whether that's to to look perfect, to act perfect, to get straight A's, to, you know, uh, well, whatever it is, athletically, professionally, academically. Um, and I know I have two high achievers um, on here. So I'm probably talking at least a little bit uh, about both of you as well. You know, how do you see uh, self-compassion and uh, perfectionism sort of go, go hand in hand as well? Yeah. Well, there are many ways to talk about that, but it's really central to the, the subject of uh, self-compassion. Um, uh, we have a, a central paradox uh, in the practice of self-compassion that when people actually remember this, their practice goes really well. And that is when we suffer, uh, we practice not to um, perfect ourselves, but to embrace our imperfections. This is a radical reframe of, of everything we do. You know, we're not trying to improve ourselves. We're rather trying to embrace ourselves as we are. And this is, this is really a difference that makes a difference. But why does it make a difference? And that is because perfectionism, in my view, is ultimately a shame problem, you know? In other words, shame is an attack on the self. And the idea is if I were more perfect, then I would um, uh, not suffer any negative feedback. And this all comes down to, Matt, um, one of the most, the primordial, one of the most basic primordial needs of human beings, which is to be, um, uh, loved, appreciated, and respected. And so this is kind of the motivation that we wake up with and we go to sleep with and we carry with us through the day. It's a matter of life and death, really, um, to be accepted, especially from, for our um, uh, hunter-gatherer ancestors. So when it appears that we're not going to be appreciated, loved, and respected, uh, we get afraid. And then we think, well, what, what would increase this is if I just did everything perfectly. Perfectly means that I would be able to control yeah. uh, outcomes and I will always be receiving the love, appreciation, and respect that I need. So the opposite of that is shame. So when people are continuously beating up on themselves, they need actually to work really, really hard to be 
um, perfect, but they ultimately will never solve the problem because the problem is not that people are being beaten up outside. The problem is they're beating up themselves. So if we can switch out that kind of harsh self-criticism with the opposite, which is good enough, you know, I, the, the sense of, I love you, I'm here for you, you're not alone, I've got your back, I trust you. You know, this is the spirit of the internal conversation. And when people are talking like that, then they don't have to be perfect in everything. They have actually dismantled the shame that underlies it. But what underlies shame, what underlies shame is the wish to be loved. Yeah, yeah powerful. So uh, I, I got a couple questions as I know we're, we're hitting uh, close to the wrap up here, but I got to get in. One is, I know you teach this. So I, I would love to hear about, uh, you know, so, somebody who might be listening to this who may not have thought um, a, a whole lot about this, but I think a lot of us right now is I could use more of this. What, 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 tell me a little bit, uh, just sort of an overview of how do you approach this? I know you've kind of made uh, a curriculum around this, a program around this. So, so uh, give our audience uh, maybe a little taste of, uh, I, I, I could use a whole dose of this right now. Uh, if they reach out to you and maybe uh, try to get into uh, maybe one of your classes, what, how do you help people increase uh, their self-compassion? Well, uh, there are as many doorways in as there are people. Probably the uh, quintessential self-compassion question is what do I need? And just asking oneself that question is an act of self-compassion. You know, what do I need to comfort myself in this moment? What do I need to soothe myself, validate myself, protect myself, provide for myself, motivate myself? So what do I need is the main question. Another question people can ask if they would like to be compassionate, self-compassionate in a particular moment is, um, how would I treat a friend right now? You know, based on the informal definition of, um, treating oneself as one would treat a good friend. Um, but uh, just practically, the single um, most um, impactful and simple practice, which people seem uh, to like the most for activating self-compassion is uh, soothing and supportive touch, which means to simply uh, place your hand on a part of your body, a particular part of your body that might be holding stress and just feel the sense of touch and warmth of your hand. Again, not to manipulate or change how you feel, but simply as an act of kindness because we are experiencing a moment of stress. So this is called soothing and supportive touch. And, um, <clears throat> And uh, there was a research just came out of uh, University of Mannheim in Germany two months ago that showed that actually when you do this, it will decrease your cortisol level. In other words, it will actually reduce uh, stress. Um, but um, interestingly, regarding heart rate variability is also another way of um, bringing compassion to ourselves is to uh, speak to ourselves uh, in a kind way, particularly uh, with gentle and supporting, uh, uh, supportive um, words. 
So we can easily ask if in this moment, if someone were to whisper into my ear something that I need to hear, what would that be? And really have the courage to be honest with ourselves and then to actually offer ourselves those same words. So there's soothing touch, there's uh, gentle vocalizations. And there was a really interesting HRV study. I think, Ina, you're, you might be well aware of this by Nicholas Petrocci in, in um, Italy, in which he had, <clears throat> he had uh, I think, three experimental groups. One, people just looked at themselves in the mirror. Another one, people talked to themselves in a kind way without looking at themselves in the mirror. And the third is people looked at themselves in the mirror while talking to themselves in a kind way. And they found that the latter uh, group increased self-compassion and heart rate variability. In other words, if you look in the mirror and you say kind things to yourself, you will probably increase your heart rate variability. <laughs> so anyhow, those are some different ways. But um, the Mindful Self-Compassion Training Program is basically eight weeks of uh, in a very kind of scaffolded way, learning how to build this skill of self-compassion. <laughs> awesome. So, so I know uh, your books are on my reading list now. Um, I want you to, uh, I'll, I'll give you a chance here after, after this question to, to, to let uh, folks know that might be interested in your work, uh, sort of how to find it. I, I guess I, I couldn't let you leave though without kind of bringing your work into the present situation. Um, you know, whether it's my work with uh, leaders with around uh, self-care or wellness, uh, you know, the burnout model I use, I think is really relevant to this because what I, what, we, what I see in the burnout research is people get exhausted. They realize they're not giving their best self uh, to the work that's important to them. And, and then guess what hits is that guilt and shame that uh, evolves over time. And, and I just see so many people there or in stages beyond that, where maybe it's uh, in many ways solidified into a trait of cynicism and callousness even. And a lot of people are, are really struggling with maybe not being the, the parent I've wanted to be, or, or my, my child's not getting all this experience. I know teachers I work with, physicians I work, I, everybody's sort of like not been, is carrying around some guilt and shame about just who they've been able to be professionally, personally during this pandemic. And I wonder if you have any insights to how the last 20, 21 months, almost two years now, has, has impacted people from your unique perspective. And if there's any just like little nuggets, uh, and then we'll give the folks the big nuggets about how to get deeper into your work. But just maybe little nuggets people can do uh, besides saying good things to themselves in the mirror, um, yeah. uh, moving forward, uh, just to maybe survive and much less recover from just the trauma and the, the tragedy we've been through the last 20 or so months. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for um, saying that. Well, um, uh, for starters, Kristen Neff and I last month signed a book contract with Guilford Press to write a book called Self-Compassion for Burnout. <laughs> Congratulations. So, we, we need that book. Uh, uh, so I'm excited. That's awesome. that'll, that'll come out probably in the early part of 2023. Awesome. Um, uh, but what you're saying is, is really true. Uh, in, um, 
in uh, the medical field, at least 50% of physicians now consider themselves burnt out. Yep. And as you said, uh, Matt, this is, this is, I mean, some people say, oh, I'm just so burnt out, but it, it actually is, is a really a crippling condition where we, you know, we, we feel cynical and start to hate the people we're supposed to care for. And then we hate ourselves for hating them yeah. uh, and exhaustion and low functioning and so forth. So burnout is real and it's, it's happening now. Um, there's, there's been research on self-compassion during the pandemic um, in uh, all over the world, actually, at least six or eight studies showing that self-compassion is really, really helpful for <clears throat> regulating the stress and the added stress of the pandemic. And I think it really works along the lines that uh, Ina was talking about in terms of, you know, decreasing the threat response, the sympathetic nervous system, increasing the parasympathetic response, providing a sense of safeness, critical, and also a sense of um, connection, even in the midst of disconnection. So I think there are, I think, frankly, heart rate variability is one of the underlying mechanisms by which uh, self-compassion regulates difficult emotions. But I would like, just like to say that um, it's, it's really not fair if we consider personal development as the only way to deal with burnout. And toward that end, I think it's really important to note that self-compassion has a yin and a yang side. It has a tender side and it has a fierce side. And the tender side is, is uh, attending, you know, comforting, soothing, validating, but also has a fierce side. And we're seeing this with a great resignation, you know? Yeah. It's kind of a great reevaluation and a great resignation, which basically means take this job and shove it, you know? Yeah. In other words, people are actually standing up They're uh, you know, they're uh, unionizing against, you know, inhuman work conditions, they're basic, uh, basically standing up to various uh, inequities uh, that um, really perpetuate our suffering. So just to know that in, to deal with burnout, um, it's really important that we deal with the structural situations that create it. And now we're, we finally sort of popped out of it enough to see those things that have been going on for a long time, as well as to in, increase our capacity to um, uh, cope with, respond and remain resilient to the inevitable stresses of life. Yeah, and I, I would be remiss and I'd love to just get your uh, quick thought on this too, is I, I, I really see right now, uh, the, the thing I'm, I'm really worried about is uh, one of the things that I think everybody would agree, if you ever worked for a great boss, that boss becomes a huge resource for you and uh, can help you really build resiliency in, in the face of, of work stress, pre-COVID, post-COVID, COVID, whatever it might be. Where, where I'm seeing so many leaders right now is that they, they've been burned out. And, yeah. you know, I think one of the things that we, we uh, you know, need to start talking about is, if a burned out leader, a leader that, you know, kind of acts in some of these inverse ways uh, and acts out of their shame, acts out of their guilt, acts out of their, uh, you know, sympathetic or amygdala, you know, 
uh, is just going to, to, to exacerbate all these problems that you just mentioned. So, you know, what, where I'm really excited that you're writing a book about this is, you know, everything you're saying about self-compassion, well, there's leadership skills to build on top of that. If you miss the relational pieces of this, I love the idea of co-regulating people's stress and being that support system is, uh, you know, leaders who can't access this part or are struggling right now, um, I'm really worried about what consequences, not only for them medically, psychologically, but, but I think one of the reasons we're seeing these systems fail is leaderships are, are in these systems that are, are burnt and a society mm -hmm. that's burned out too. Uh, you know, and I, I wonder just maybe as a, a kind of la last answer to my question before I turn it over to you is like, uh, where have you seen this kind of hit with leaders? Have, have you seen uh, folks gravitate towards this uh, in their leadership approaches as well? Yeah, uh, so compassion and self-compassion is really following close at the heels of uh, mindfulness in the uh, leadership and in the business community. Mindfulness is now kind of, you know, standard procedure in, in, um, in uh, a business consulting, but um, uh, the research is now uh, getting really strong to show that uh, compassionate organizations are more productive uh, for many, way, many reasons. It, it increases collaboration, increases motivation and, and ultimately productivity. Um, but then the question is, how do you create a compassionate organization? And I think what you were referring to, Matt, is really key, which is <laughs> it's a little hard for burnt out leaders to create a compassionate organization because they're just trying to survive. Yeah. And, and uh, one of, frankly, the reason why I am so committed to this field of self-compassion is because in my view, there's nothing more important um, in terms of personal development at this point in global history than to, for us all to be a little more compassionate. And I think the easiest way to be more compassionate toward others is to be more compassionate with ourselves in the same way that we, that it, there's no effort at all to fall in love with ourselves. With the, with the proper training, we can actually fall in compassion for ourselves. And the inevitable outcome of that is we're more compassionate toward others. So this is also getting into the business world. We now are almost, it's almost done. We have a specialized eight-week training for business leaders, uh, which has been organized by Michael Merckx in Germany and an international team. Uh, to do exactly what you're saying, to support the, the, the leaders so that they can create compassionate organizations so that uh, organizations can thrive. The fact of the matter is, is that we spend so much of our time in the workplace and life includes suffering. So, so much of the suffering that we experience in life happens at work. Yes. Yet, yet we, can tr we consider it sort of kind of, kind of a you know, something extra that people need to kind of suck up and deal with. But that, that's not a sustainable model anymore. We actually need, as you said, Matt, to attend um, to the connections between people and also to the, we need to 
foster and facilitate people to have a, a strong connection with whatever is meaningful to them so that everybody thrives. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I cannot wait. And, and I hope that uh, the book on burnout uh, uh, will trigger another episode with you because I, I, I'd love to, to, to get my hands on it, do a deep dive with you around that topic. Because, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, in any field, uh, but, but especially in the ones I work with, where you need to give empathy and compassion to other folks, which, which can be exhausting at times, uh, too. I mean, there, there's a lot of work there, emotional labor that we don't talk about. Um, I can't wait to have that as a resource and hopefully a, a good, solid excuse to uh, continue this conversation. So as somebody who has created, and, and I just want to celebrate that uh, that ride to the, the Boston airport that uh, spurred all of this, I love looking back at those little things uh, that, that spur uh, some, some really amazing and transformative work like yours. Uh, you know, I've got your uh, website up here, great resource, uh, but, but tell people if they're, they're interested in learning more about you, uh, hey, how, how do they find out uh, about your trainings, about your books? Uh, I'll let you uh, guide them to the right place. Uh, yeah, so I think the best place uh, is to go to uh, this, the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, www.centerformsc.org. And that uh, nonprofit is really responsible for disseminating self-compassion uh, uh, training throughout the world. And there are a lot of resources there, you know, free meditations and all kinds of things. There are, on, there are free online circles of practice uh, groups in... Um, three times a day, every day uh, that people can attend. Uh, it's all free. And, uh, and then there are also programs you can join and, you know, pay for if you want. <laughs> and there are, the, there are books, you know, there's a professional book called Teaching the Mindful Self-Compassion Program for your professional audience. Uh, there's a workbook called um, uh, Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. Uh, Kristen Neff's website is an enormous resource, especially for scientists. Awesome. Uh, that's self-compassion.org. Um, and I also really give a shout out to our colleague in, in the UK, Paul Gilbert, who developed uh, compassion-focused therapy, and he has the compassionatemind.co.uk, which has an enormous amount of resources on how to grow in uh, self-compassion. So there's a lot out there and the research is uh, thriving. I think we're at the beginning of a big wave and I uh, really appreciate uh, you, Matt and uh, Ina for being interested in this and, um, and, uh, and everybody who has been listening to this uh, video, thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, this has been an incredibly insightful and thoughtful and useful, practical conversation, just a perfect blend of, uh, uh, you know, the, the science and, uh, you know, kind of a bit of an intro, but a deep dive and a lot of really uh, great practical uh, advice for people. So uh, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. And we'll put some of that information in the show notes as well for folks, uh, which you can find at Heart Rate Variability Podcast. Uh, Dot com And Chris, I also want to thank you. This has been a great episode. And uh, like I said, please, uh, as that new book is coming out, uh, 
Uh, love to have you back. Uh, who knows where the world's going to be at that time, but I can pretty much guarantee how things are going, at least in the United States right now. Uh, we will still be talking and in need of your expertise, uh, both inside and outside the work environment. So I really thank you for your work and, and joining us as well. But listen, Matt, I think that the best antidote to burnout is just to spend an hour with you. You're just so full of delight and energy. <laughs> hey, well, well, I'll take that as our last word and uh, thank the audience for joining us as well. Thanks so much, everybody. Thank you.